Welcome to Stonebridge. You know, before we get into Philippians, we've been going through the book of Philippians. I first just wanted to point out that tomorrow is Pat and Frank Bean's 60th wedding anniversary. Um, right, let's give them in. They're right here, second row. I won't embarrass you too much, but... And here's why this is so significant. 60 years, right? Doesn't need much ex- explanation, but here's the thing. Faithfulness is really important. And so if you are in a relationship... Follow their example. 60 years of being faithful to one another. And then if you're not in a relationship, be faithful to God. With every breath you have. Every year that you have. So we want to pray for you too. Make sure you honor them and, 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 and learn from them. Not just today, but moving forward. Um, and and we'll, we'll, uh, it'll, be, it'll be good. So let's pray. God, thank you for... Frank and Pat, I pray, Father, you would bless them this year and for years to come. Thank you for their example of faithfulness. Thank you for that example in my life and in everyone in here's life. Pray that you would just give us that sort of faithfulness, God. Help us to continue to learn from them. And and we pray, God, that um, the marriages, especially in this room, um, would, would persevere as they have and thrive through the years so that we would have stories and, and opportunities like this of, uh, uh, of a plenty to come, God, that we would have tons of marriages where we're just like, wow, they have been faithful for so many years. We want to be faithful to the end, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's, let's give them a hand. So I was thinking about working out this week. That's about where it stops. <laughs> All right. Working out's really hard, right? But what's harder than working out is continuing to work out. And what's really hard for me and for most people, I find, is to just show up to the workout, right? When I, whenever I get in a routine of working out with, with people, um, very quickly, usually the second time, uh, I want to text them and say, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it today because of this or that, different excuse every time, kind of run through them, about five of them you cycle through. and um, th- That's what I'm tempted to do, and that's what we're all tempted to do. And so we're going to be in Philippians 2 today, and Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out or obey Jesus. Obedience to Jesus is also really hard work. Amen? It is difficult to obey Jesus. But the point of this scripture, of Philippians 2, 12 to 18, is this. Paul's saying, choose joy by choosing to work out. Or put another way, choose joy by choosing to obey. So let's read the text. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In looking at verses 12 and 13, I quickly ask the question, and as, as many of us do, and go, what is God's role in obedience? And what is my role in obedience? What's God's role in working out and what is mine? Well, I love what author Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, says. He says, we are 100% responsible for the pursuit of holiness. But at the same time, we are 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enable us in that pursuit. So the question is the the question of is is it God's role or is it my role is is the wrong question. The answer is yes. The answer is it's 100% us in our effort and 100% God. 100% us depending on the Holy Spirit. So I know that's bad math if you're, you know, accountant or mathematician or something. I know that's bad math, but this is spiritual math. A little bit different rules apply here, so it works out. But what's God's role? First and foremost, it's his role in, in, in our obedience is to give us free membership. God's role in working out is to pay for and offer us free membership. So if you look at the text before this, in chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died on a cross to give us this costly gift. It was costly to God. It wasn't just like you paying $20 a month for someone else's membership fee at a, at a gym. No, he paid with his blood. He paid with his very life. But even before that, even before he died, it's his humiliation. It's his condescension that he would come to earth as a human. And if you missed it last week, Steve Bensma's message on that passage on Philippians 2, 5 through 11, you should go back and listen to it. Did a great job. But God, that is God's role. He, he offers us salvation. And our role is just to accept it. Verse 12, it says, work out your salvation. It implies that they're saved. What are they saved from? They're saved from the penalty of sin. They're saved from hell. They're saved from their own selfishness. And they're saved to a relationship with God. They're saved to a perfectly loving Father. They're saved to to a relationship with God now and for eternity. And that is true for any of us who believe as well. So God gives us the free membership and we accept it. Second role that God has is to be our example. So I was trying to think about working out and who's a good example of working out. And I couldn't help but think of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, not Joey. He was Dwayne the Rock, he was pointing to himself, so I had to... Couldn't resist. Um, raise your hand if you know who Dwayne Johnson is. Just to, Okay, it's not a terrible illustration. Good. Um, if you don't, you're about to learn about him. Um, here he is. Here's his workout routine. Here's day one. Here's legs. I don't even know what that stuff means. Uh, running, I get that one. Um, so there it is. Day two, there's his back. Um, just the results are what matter here. So um, back, day three, shoulders. How do you get a shoulder like that? I don't, 
didn't know those muscles existed. Okay, next. Arms, abs, clearly. I mean, all right. Does some stuff in there. Legs again. That's my favorite picture right there. Get the, all right, and then the chest, clearly. Okay, they do, he does some stuff. And then day seven is the rest day, a.k.a. cheat day sometimes for him. And he posted this on Twitter one time. One day he ate four whole pizzas, a bunch of brownies, and a bunch of pancakes. Look it up. It sounds gross. So just in case you thought Dwayne Johnson was like superhuman, he's not. He has days like that. Although that's kind of superhuman eating. But where are we going with this? I don't really know how to transition this back super smoothly, so we'll just make it rough. Um, Jesus is our example of obedience. So he's our superhuman example of obedience, like the rock is is a superhuman example of working out. Um, But chapter 2, verse 8, obedient to the point of death. There's no greater example for us in obedience and working out in sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Jesus, than than Jesus' perfect example. He's the only one who's ever had a perfect track record. He had no cheat days like the rock. But he wasn't just perfectly obedient. Think about it. He was sacrificially obedient to the point of death, it says. I mean, it's, it's one thing to follow orders. But it's another thing, if you're in the military, it's another thing to be given some orders and to to basically be given orders to go in and sacrifice yourself, as many of our troops and veterans have gone before us and done, so that we can have the freedoms we enjoy here in America. But it, it, you know, it's one thing to be perfectly obedient. It's another thing to be sacrificially obedient. But it's, it's quite another thing to be radically obedient. It says here he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Roman orator Cicero, who was a contemporary of the Philippians at this time, said this. Far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. Translation. Roman citizens at that time, Rome was the, the, the power in charge. Paul was probably writing from prison in Rome when he wrote this. He's saying it wasn't even right for Roman citizens to think about this form of death, crucifixion. And that's what happened to Jesus at the hands of the Romans. I was trying to think of an example modern day. And I thought of this. What's something, what's a form of punishment that you would be like, oh, wow. I mean, I don't even want to think about that. So I won't go into detail, but think of like, we're, we're going to punish this person by feeding them to a cannibal. Like, I, I don't even want to think about that. It's terrible. And that is what Jesus did. He wasn't just put to death. He willingly did this. He was obedient to the point of death, even death in the worst way possible. Death on a cross. Jesus was perfectly, sacrificially, and radically obedient. So God's job in working out is to be our shining example of obedience. And then our job is to obey. To show up to the gym. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's because of what he just got done saying. In view of Jesus' perfect, sacrificial, radical example, 
you now obey in the same way. And he says, as you have always obeyed. This doesn't mean the Philippians were perfect. It just means that they always obeyed Paul when he was with them as God's representative. So he's saying, now that I'm gone, it's even more important that you listen to me. But, but not just me, listen to God as his representative and keep obeying. But he's so tender in this too. He says, therefore, my beloved, my dearly loved ones. It, it's not a harsh command. He could have been like, you know what? You guys just need to obey already, okay? No, he's like, my beloved. He reminds them, he affirms the relationship because I love you so much. Listen to me. Obey. Jesus is the motivation for showing up each day. When you look at his obedience, it should be inspiring to you. It should be like, I, I'm showing up. I'm listening to him because he lived it. However, like any great example, often turns into being intimidated or being discouraged. Often when we're inspired by people or by anything, it can turn into intimidation and discouragement, even when it comes to obedience with Jesus. So he doesn't just leave it at that. God, yes, is our example, but he also gives us his energy and his strength. Imagine if you had the rocks, energy and strength when you went to work out. Or for me some days, imagine if I just had anybody else's energy or strength. Because I often am just like, I don't have it. I don't want to do a thing. Verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. God gives us the will. That means he gives us the energy, the desire, the drive to obey. But it doesn't end there. Both to will and to work. He gives us the strength to carry it out, the power to use that energy and desire to obey him. Now, I love watching the Olympics. Heather and I like watching the Olympics. I remember taking some time off once just to sit at home and watch the Olympics, admittedly, especially the Summer Olympics. And um, in 1992, there was an Olympian, there was a track star by the name of Derek Redman from the UK. And I want to introduce you to his story right here.
His dad helped him to the finish line in a very real way. Your heavenly father will not just carry you limping to the finish line, but will give you the desire and the energy and the strength to win the race. That's our God. That's your father. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling really defeated by sin. Maybe it's just really hard to obey right now in life or even wanting to obey. Then I would invite you to ask and receive renewed strength, renewed desire, more than you ever thought possible from your Heavenly Father. Maybe you're struggling to obey, not because of your lack of effort, but because of your lack of asking. Maybe you do not have because you do not ask. And so that's, that's our role. We keep showing up. God gives us the energy. God gives us the strength. Verse 12, work out your salvation. Keep showing up. One theologian said this about working out your salvation. He said, work out as God in his grace has worked in. Work out as God in his grace has worked in. He's worked in us salvation. He gave us salvation. He's our example. He gives us energy. He gives us strength. So we just keep showing up to that source. Keep showing up to the gym. And we will start to become like Jesus. Keep showing up. Be motivated by the grace that he's given us. And then obey. But that word work out doesn't just mean do it once. It means continue to do it all the way to the finish, all the way to the end. Keep on obeying and growing in obedience the rest of your life. Now, it's still hard work and it takes perseverance. Don't get me wrong. It's very difficult to obey Jesus. But keep showing up with his energy, with his strength. And so the question that we need to be asking ourselves this morning is this. Am I more obedient than I was a year ago today? Sure, there's ups and downs, but what's the overall trajectory of the obedience in my life if I am a follower of Jesus? Husbands and wives, are you showing up? Are you, uh, sorry, are you showing more love and more respect to your spouse than you were a year ago today? Parents, dads especially, are you more like your heavenly father to your children than you were a year ago today? Children, teenagers, you're not off the hook. Are you, mo- are you more obedient to your parents than you were a year ago today? Employees, are you a harder worker, a better follower than you were a year ago today? Bosses, are you more servant-hearted and courageous than you were a year ago today? Even as I say some of these things, I feel convicted. Maybe some of you do as well. And so the solution, though, is to remember. It's to remember what we've already talked about. To remember the gospel, the good news, that God gives us salvation. He's our example. He gives us energy. He gives us strength. And then what we can do, we see in the rest of this passage, what we can do is start to adjust our attitude. Attitude is really important in working out. Some people say it's 90%. Mental. I know that's true for running, at least. But we need to adjust our attitude because attitude drives action. Attitude drives action. You know this to be true. I know this to be true because of my kids. Here's what inevitably happens when I set a new uh, food in front of my kids. They'll decide before I even set it in front of them whether they like it or not. 
And then their attitude will drive their action. If they decided before I put that food in front of them that they don't like it, they're not going to eat it. Or at least they'll throw a fit the whole time. And, and f- when they finally do eat it, they'll, they'll let me know it. Because attitude drives action. But if they decide, yeah, I love that food before it even comes, they'll gobble that thing up. Attitude drives action. It's the same for us as we're trying to obey Jesus. Our attitude, it says in this text, the key is to, to be, to, your attitude has to be with something and without something else. But before I share what those things are, just remember, of all the attitudes that Paul could have mentioned here, that God could have given us, these are the most important. So listen up. These aren't instinctive at all. They wouldn't be the ones that I would put in there, but they're there for a reason. So our attitude needs to be with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. This is awe and wonder, remembering God's roles, remembering that that God in his grace has given us all of this. But it's also an urgency. It's this sense that obedience does matter. It's not just, I believe in Jesus and then for eternity, I'm going to be with him great and in between doesn't matter at all. It absolutely does matter. Obedience matters to God. But it's not fear and trembling. It's not this fear of what my father will do to me. It's a fear of what disobedience does to my father. You tracking with me? See, disobedience or sin is a huge deal to God. It always has been, always will be. That has not changed throughout the Bible, throughout history. So much so that there is eternal conscious torment for those who are in sin when they die. God's hatred of sin hasn't changed. What's changed is that our just punishment for sin, if we are in Christ, gets propitiated. That is a big word that's in the Bible a few different times, and that just means that the anger is removed. God's just anger for sin is removed because Jesus took it on himself. Our record is clear. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So working out your salvation in fear and trembling is not out of fear of what my Father will do to me. The punishment's taken care of. No, it's out of fear of what disobedience does to my Father. As I'm sure some of you can relate with, as I've grown up, the farther I get along, the more respect I have for my Father. For my earthly father. As I, as I grow up, I love and appreciate my dad even more. Why? Because I'm less and less concerned about his punishments. Him sending to my room or whatever, you know, when I'm younger. But as I get older, now, I don't want to disappoint him. And often disappointing him hurts me even more. It's not out of fear of what? Your heavenly father will do to you. It's out of fear of what disobedience does to your father. So here's the attitude we need to have. With fear and trembling. But it needs to be with fear and trembling and without grumbling or disputing. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is an attitude. At first glance, you're like, no, that's that's just saying words, grumbling and disputing. No, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of discontentment. 
never happy with what you have. It's extreme negativity. It's, it's never being satisfied. If you're discontent, if you're grumbling, disputing, complaining, arguing, even with other people, it should be a warning light to us that we actually, our attitude towards our Heavenly Father is off. Think of it like this. Even before the fall, even before sin was in the world, there was the temptation to grumble and complain. Genesis 3.1, Satan, the devil, says, did God actually say that? He's tempting them to complain, tempting them to grumble and then act on it. And they do. And because they do that, we can just look through a lot of the Old Testament. It's just a bunch of grumbling and disputing and complaining and arguing. And it's first and foremost against God. So fast forward a little bit. Exodus, verse, Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. These are the Israelites. Okay, the Israelites were God's chosen people. They were in captivity. They were in slavery for 400 years under the Egyptians. They're, they're set free miraculously through Moses. And he leads them out. And then they start complaining again when they get to the Red Sea. So God parts the Red Sea. They get through that. So you think by then, oh yeah, we trust God. We're not going to complain and argue anything like that. Nope, they're out in the middle of the desert and they're like, where's our food? Here they are. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You got to love complaining. Uh, And then, so God graciously gives them food and says, I'm going to give you food. And then you get down to verse 8. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. How instructive is that to us today and to everyone from all time periods? All grumbling and complaining is not against people in our lives. It's not even against people in authority. They're going to Moses and Aaron and complaining. And Moses calls them out and goes, no, this isn't against us. This this was against the Lord. But it keeps getting worse. So you you jump, you fast forward quite a bit to John chapter 6. And you have the Jews, God's chosen people. They're reacting to Jesus and they say, St. John six forty one. So the Jews grumbled about him, Jesus, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Certainly there was some misunderstanding they had, but if they would have been listening to Jesus, Jesus was saying, I have the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I have the answers that you've been looking for and waiting for, for life. And they complain. Jesus' own disciples aren't immune to this. Luke 9, 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I mean, they were certainly arguing with each other and complaining about each other a bit. But why? Because they were complaining about the spot that God had placed them in. They were already in Jesus's God's inner circle when he was here on earth. And they found a way to complain. Complaining and arguing begins with an attitude towards God. The opposite of fear and trembling and obedience 
is complaining and arguing. It's disregard of God and disobedience. Discontent, grumbling, complaining, arguing, all this with God shows itself with other people. But if you're complaining and arguing a lot, it should be a check engine light for you. A warning sign to you that your attitude with God is off. It says do all things, all things without complaining and arguing. Not just some, not every situation with every person, even when you don't agree or are frustrated with them. And that is extremely hard to live out. Every relationship with others without complaining or arguing. You know, this is most difficult for us with those who are in authority over us. And here's why. It's a call to submission. And even just saying that word makes some of you cringe. Submission. Why? Because God has put those people in place and authority in our lives. It's like parenting. Again, the first big responsibility we have as parents to our children is to teach them that they are under authority. To teach them that they are under, yes, our authority, but ultimately God's authority. And if we don't teach them that, they'll spend the rest of their life struggling because they, they, they didn't get that right. But I, I could go off on a parenting seminar here, but I won't. The idea is that submission is, is woven into God's framework of how relationships work. And it's not a bad thing. Paul is saying here, especially with believers, especially in Jesus' church, we need to not complain and argue. We need to contrast what the world does. He calls it a dark and twisted generation and world at that time. Here we are 2,000 years later. What do you call this? But that's another sermon as well. But it's a, it's a call to unity. It's a call from... It, it, it's a, He's referring back to Philippians 1.27 and 2 verse 2 where he calls them to be unified. And he's doing this because he naturally knows that the Philippians and us, we tend to be negative. We tend to be discontent. We tend to complain and argue. And that's just what the world does. That's what the world does instinctively. Apart from God, that's what we all do. But we have the hope of Jesus that we were just singing about. We have the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We have access to joy regardless of circumstances. But what happens when you're frustrated with people? What happens when you're justified to argue with other people, especially other believers? I think Paul is saying, especially when you're frustrated most and feel the most justified to argue with other believers. Will you go out of your way, both publicly and privately, to say and make others feel like you're on the same team? Are you going to communicate in such ways that say we're on the same team? Unity. Certainly, we are still called to be direct and upfront with each other. But always with gentleness and respect. And it has to be gentleness and respect that's felt. Even when you're bringing concerns and frustrations to other people. That can be done. It's really hard to live out. 
It can be done, and we're called to it. All things without complaining and arguing. How do we have this attitude? How do we have this attitude of fear and trembling, but without complaining and arguing? Here's how you do it. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. What's the word of life? Certainly an application could be all the Bible, but what Paul is referring to here, the word of life, the word that gives life is the gospel. It is the good news. That it's what we started with today. It's what Paul talks about all the time. It's woven throughout all of scripture. It's God's salvation. It's his example. It's his energy. It's his strength through the Holy Spirit. And you might be thinking, wow, Paul, do you repeat yourself much? I mean, you were just talking about the gospel. Now you're talking about it again. Here's why he's doing it. The gospel that saved you. The gospel that inspires you to obey and the gospel that empowers you to obey should be the same gospel that changes our attitude towards obedience. This is why we saturate our songs with the gospel that we sing here. This is why we saturate our messages with the gospel, our youth ministry, our women's ministry, our D6 children's ministry, everything we do here at Stonebridge Church, we saturate it with the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not just the room that we're born into. It's every room that we go into after that. It's the very air that we breathe. So the solution to changing our attitude, if we're naturally prone to complaining and arguing and not being obedient or living in in this fear and trembling, this awe of God, The solution isn't to try harder, but it's actually just to realize the oxygen that you already have available to you in the gospel already. And the results, if we do this, if we walk in obedience, we live out our salvation with fear and trembling, will be joy. So going back to the working out analogy, the results or the gains, Joey taught me that, Um, apparently that's a working out term. The gains or the results are joy. Joy for four different people we see in this passage. Verse 13, it says, for whose good pleasure? God's. For God's good pleasure. Do this for his good pleasure. If God doesn't get joy out of our obedience, nobody gets joy out of our obedience. That's our purpose as humans. It's to glorify, to honor, to worship God. Not that he needs it, but because he deserves it. Secondly, other people get joy. Verse 15, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you must shine as lights in the world. Obedience, especially unity, stands out like a bright light in a dark room. Like when you turn your cell phone light off, In the middle of a dark room. And as we do that, many will be drawn to it. They'll see that and go, wow, that is a different way of living. That's something I want. And they can receive the joy of joys for eternity. They will receive joy and welcomed into this workout themselves. God's joy, others' joy, Paul's joy. Verse 16, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
quick little lesson on drink offerings. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, they had this drink offering where you would pour out wine while you were sacrificing an animal. And it sounds really grotesque because it was, but the idea was this, that it would offer up, up this aroma to God. But it was pointing, it was pointing us today to Jesus' blood that was poured out for us as the ultimate sacrifice. Paul is saying, even if I die, For the name of Jesus. Even if I die a terrible death. So that you Philippians can continue. To work out your salvation. That will produce joy in me. Because death. My death will produce life. In you. So Paul's joy. And lastly our joy. The Philippians joy. And by extension ours. Verse 18. Likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Obedience matters. And obedience matters to us. It matters to God, but it should matter to you and I. In a very real, tangible way, you receive joy as a result of obedience. Here, right now, even before heaven. So here's an example. By God's grace, my wife Heather and I did not have sex before we got married. I don't say that to brag, and it was very difficult. And I also want to say this as a caveat. If you have, there's real grace and healing and forgiveness for you. There's hope. But here's the point. Because we did that, Heather and I received joy because of the baggage that's just not there in our lives. We receive joy even to today because she is mine and I am hers, period. We receive joy because we're not tempted to, to have these regrets and guilt and shame hanging over us. It's not there. I mean, we still definitely have hard times in our marriage. And we certainly are not wealthy. But we have true, deep-seated joy and blessing as a result of our obedience to God. So, what joy are you missing out on? Because you're not walking in obedience. Choose joy by choosing obedience motivated by God's power and God's grace. Let's pray.